I was digging parts out of the garbage at this old job and I built my first pedal with that and a light bulb went off. I was okay at writing songs and I was terrible at making pedals, but when you can make your own, it's a very liberating thing. There's a whole creative realm outside of arranging tones and pitches over time. And get this, sometimes people pay for it. I'm Mike Moschetto, and this is Selling Out. I'm the casino that pays nothing when you win. Please put your money in. You are listening to Selling Out, a podcast about music and money and the mystery that has plagued promoters and artists from time immemorial. If there were 150 people who clicked going or interested on this Facebook event, where the hell is everybody? I'm Mike Moschetto, and my guest today is John Snyder, a musician and PhD candidate, and I guess I would say an aspiring mad scientist if he isn't one already. He's the founder of and considerable brains behind Electronic Audio Experiments, which is a, dare I say, boutique guitar effects pedal company known for innovative designs that go way beyond your run-of-the-mill overdrive tones. This is starting to sound like an ad, so I'll just say that we talked about the degree of success that he's had in the brief time since he started making pedals professionally and how his time spent recording and touring in post-hardcore bands contributed to that rise in an increasingly competitive field. We also went into more detail about several of his musical endeavors, which you'll hear, starting with the genesis of his band, Native Wildlife. So here's my conversation with John. Enjoy! What's left? I had been doing my ambient thing since I was in, gosh, like a sophomore in high school. And uh, so then people were like, oh, you're like the pedal guy. So, you know, I got I got sucked into bands before I even knew what I was doing with stuff. But I had a I had a metalcore band and, uh, you know, there were some riffs, but there was nothing else of substance. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, like I had tried to start things here. There were some other friends. None of it really shook out. Native Wildlife was like, okay. Me and four other people are going to start a band. We're going to play music. We're going to record in a studio. We're going to attempt to tour. We're going to attempt to have a vehicle in which all of our things are at the same time. Um, All these were revolutionary concepts at the time. We were really feeling the law dispute, the wave zeitgeist. Oh, that was was an era. That was an era. Um, You know, like, I think you you talked on this podcast before about how certain genres are uh, sort of in vogue in DIY and then just gone. And post-hardcore is that genre. I think it died with you guys, honestly. We we killed it. Yeah, nice going. I think, well, <laughs> so I think that the way that you guys conducted yourselves is probably pretty common to a lot of the people who are listening, mm-hmm. right? So your college band, so like your formation and your peak, like active period is primarily while you're an undergrad. You're maybe not all at the same school, but the academic calendar kind of dominates the way that you do things. It's like the sort of Damocles hanging over you. Yeah. Winter um, break record, spring break tour, summer tour. Exactly. Hibernate, so, rinse, repeat. Yeah. So, I mean, go a little more into detail about the balance of that, like how you guys, especially where you're living out of state to everybody else. Yeah. So at our peak, we had three members in Boston and two in Connecticut, um, or I guess at our, our peak number of Boston members. And then eventually uh, it shifted so that I was the only one in Boston. But I also had a car, was fairly mobile, you know, and I was also the, at that point the only one who was still in school. So actually, being on the academic calendar made me more free than everybody else. 
especially, you know, our drummer Nick for the longest time was working a union manufacturing job. So he and he was working third shift. So we were like on polar opposite schedules. And there were times even when I was living in Connecticut where we couldn't rehearse at the same time. The logistics were always all over the place. It was always, you know, we were always only looking one or two months out, except when we were writing a record. In which case it was, we'd have these binges of writing and rehearsing and then we wouldn't see each other for three months and then we would, you know, it was weird. But you also have ways that you made your college experience kind of play into it, like feed off of each other, right? Like practice space shows, those yep, little, under, yep. I mean, now that the place has totally been overhauled, right? Like, yeah, bootleg shows that must not be named somewhere on BU's premises, they happened. Um, as the, as uh, Boston University employees, we'll probably cut this section. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, redacted. Paywall. We we had those shows at BU Central, which you know, despite it being a resoundingly like not punk TM place, uh, had a nice energy to it. Had good sound, and it felt nice to say that you could book shows on your home turf, which really was meaningful to us, especially at the time. And uh, I always really believe in if you have a platform, just like pulling whoever you can onto that platform in the way of friends. And so it was like, well, obviously we have to book Aviator on these shows. Obviously we have to book Certe on these shows. Obviously, you know, just it felt it. You know, who else were we going to put on there? Um, it was, you know, it felt natural and fun, and it was just a cool experiment to do. So this is not something I had planned to ask, but how does the post-college... Well, actually, you're not really post-college, though. You're kind of still in the... You're still a student in many mm, ways. Post, post-college in the way that purgatory is post-life. Um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, like grad school, um, you know, if you're in a master's degree, then you basically have to be a monk and just devote all of your energy to your you know, to a year's worth of really intensive coursework and everything. And then you're all of a sudden you're spit out back into industry or whatever with a PhD. It's uh, you know, it's, it's a marathon because you have to be grinding the whole time. You are not a student in that you're not taking classes all the time. I finished all my classes in about a two year span and you're also not an employee in that there's no HR department to be like, Hey, I would like to take a vacation now, please. Um, yeah. I guess, I guess what I'm thinking of is like, are you, you're not paying loans. You're still kind of on deferment. Because yep, the loans are on still... deferment, and that's the only way my life works right now. Now, you grew up learning violin. Yes. Um, and if you're anything like me, it took you a long time to... Because I played flute in my mm-hmm. school band. Um, not ashamed. Uh, but it took you a long time to kind of realize the investment that your parents made, like financing the instrument itself and yeah. then lessons and then the transportation to and from rehearsals and and concerts and all that so uh were your parents of a musical background or um my mom did suzuki piano lessons when she was young but my dad didn't play the instruments he just uh his dad my my uh papa worked for uh magnavox and so they always had like the late great uh you know receivers and you know seven like they and they this ended up with information a lot of yeah he so makes a lot of sense so yeah he so he was an electrical engineer he worked uh this is my my grandfather my dad's side um he worked at the like the phillips magnavox plant in greenville tennessee making tv tubes and wow. uh ironically i did not really get into anything vacuum tube related until after he passed away but there's a very fascinating legacy there but long story short, my dad uh, and his brothers would just blast ACDC records on, you know, whatever the state-of-the-art Magnavox hi-fi system was, and they were blowing speakers constantly, and then his dad <laughs> would get them at the employee discount. Um, so my dad really liked music of all kinds. My parents were very adamant about having music be always on. It was, you know, uh, just such a, a crazy smattering of stuff from classic rock to folk music to show tunes and classical music and 
Um, so my brother and I, my brother's a, a, almost a little over a year younger than me, started music lessons at the same time. He was doing piano. I was doing violin. And uh, we were just steeped in it. I was start, I started at age six. And it was just, uh, you know, Suzuki method is great for the people who don't know. You basically learn by ear before you learn how to read music. And so uh, you're forced to repeat things and you can internalize a melody by hearing it and then playing it back. It's great to, for developing memory and pitch and things like that. Um, no, there was a name for that. It's cool. That's um, kind of just how I. That's how I kind of process it. I I can read music not very well, and yeah. like, I can read tablature, but I'm much more of like a by ear mm-hmm. player. That's cool. Um, now, how old are you when you start down the left hand path? We'll call it of <laughs> rock and roll guitar. Oh man, the left hand path. Um, All its so excesses and. We got my brother a guitar for his thirteenth birthday, I think. And uh, he played it for like a summer and then kind of it fell out of favor. And so I started noodling around on it. My fantasy was to tune it into violin tuning so that I could just immediately pour it over. And I was turning the high, str- high E string up and it snapped on me. And uh, that was clearly, I wanted it to be, um, well, gosh, no, it wasn't the E string. I wanted the, uh, anyway, I was trying to tune it to violin tuning. It was a catastrophic failure. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but, in, but eventually I was like, all right, let's just try to do these basic chord shapes that everyone, you know, tries to do. And, uh, from the book. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but I, I was never happy with how the guitar sounded, even from like the very beginning, there was this little Ibanez, uh, you know, practice amp. And I remember going to daddy's junkie music, long live daddy's junkie music. And, uh, saying, I really, I feel like I need a clean distortion. And the guy was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, you know, I, I, I pointed out like whatever pop punk record du jour I was, you know, listening to, I was listening to half classical music and half pop punk. I was a very, very confused 13, 14 year old. Um, <laughs> and I was just saying like, well, yeah, you know, you go now I say, I can say, okay, these guys are probably using like a JCM 900 in the studio. It's a basic high gain tone, but it was articulate enough that you could chug on power chords and make everyone happy. And I couldn't even do that with this little crappy 10 watt amp. And uh-huh. so, but that just set me on a path of like, obsessively critically listening to my guitar sounds all the time, even before I could really play the instrument. I mean, you and I have obviously done our time in the, uh, the minds of like gear tumblers, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yep. Amp worship and all that sort of stuff, which <laughs> I was only trying to be as smart and cool as you, but, uh, is your interest in electronics and tinkering kind of nascent at this point? Or does that come after or maybe even before well i so i i grew up playing legos all the time so that gave me the like you know obsessive sort of like building things nature um you know when i was a little little kid i would wake up at six in the morning and go down into my super cold basement and build spaceships and then wake my parents up with them and uh you know so there was always that drive to just make stuff um and that took on different forms honestly when i was in school i was so busy doing homework that a lot of my like hobbies and passions really dwindled um homework is not good for teenagers um it certainly wasn't good for me and uh you know but i was so busy doing it and all all i cared about was getting into a college that i just sort of forgot about it but i was also had this like sort of heady oh i want to be a, a philosopher of physics thing for a bit and then when i got back into electronics by way of trying to repair broken pedals i was like wait a second no i'm actually an engineer at heart that's that is what i'm supposed to do and so i built my first pedal in high school um it was a zvex super hard on clone it's a clean booster and uh i got parts out of the trash at this internship that i had uh, i was working for this electronics company in connecticut called pq controls and they make industrial joysticks, uh, like for, you know, like personnel lifts and construction equipment. And 
I would take parts out of the trash can and out of like they had junk drawers just full of stuff from decades of engineers tinkering and then throwing things away. Like if you breadboard, you pull the parts out and you don't want to sort them out again, so they they're trash. Um, and how do you know what all this stuff is already? Well, uh, there was a lot of Googling and just like looking up things and sort of experimenting and also asking people, saying like, hey, I want to build this thing. Do you know if we can find like a uh, this kind of, you know, pot? Like, do you guys have any knobs in like the back? And they would help because like the engineers were, were just very curious as to what I was up to. This is when I was like 17, I think. I'm just thinking of somebody listening to this, like divorced of context and being like, what kind of pot? Like, <laughs> sorry. Oh, yeah. Potentiometer for the informed, I guess. But yeah, I'm just, barely keeping up, so I'm just thinking of <laughs> just anyway. Long story short, I was digging parts out of the garbage at this old job, and I built my first pedal with that, and a light bulb went off in a huge way. Like I had been, you know, using pedals at that point, um, but when you can make your own, it's a very liberating thing. Um, I was okay at writing songs, and I was terrible at making pedals, but I always like, you know, like wow, there's like the whole new axis of the creative process that I'm tapping into now. Um, and that's what it was really, you know, and so many people can share this very same story. They build their first kit or they mod something or, you know, they break something and have to fix it. Like there's all sorts of ways where that comes out. And then you realize that a guitar is an electronic device and a musical instrument and both go together. An electric guitar. An electric guitar. Maybe it's because we both just went to our friends' mm-hmm. last show slash reunion, but I do want to talk a little bit about the end of Native Wildlife because, you know, at one point, the, the original vocalist of your band mm-hmm. left. And that's like a death knell for almost any band. And the fact that you guys could not only survive that, but thrive is kind of a testament to your ability to find like once you lose the, your your literal voice, being able to retain your figurative voice is huge, right? So, at one point, you find out that your drummer Nick, who you mentioned before, is yeah. going to be moving across the country. And obviously, this is not meant as a knock mm-hmm. on Nicky, but I've, there are far more bands that have lost a drummer and pressed on yes. than lost a vocalist and done the same. So, just take me through the decision making that made you want to just call it a day rather than find someone else. Nick was the band dad, but to just say, and obviously that's a very, very important thing for any band. You got to have your band mom or your band dad. Um, but, you know, he wasn't just, it wasn't just band dad. It was, you know, there was a lot of informing the artistic direction. There's a lot of just, you know, positive energy, motivation. He was the hardest working member of that band for sure. Um, you know, there were, there were times when, you know, comparatively Adam and I are phoning in our parts and Nick is just playing his heart out all the time. And, uh, you know, like, and there was no decision was made without any of us. Um, so when it was came time for him to leave and for such a good reason, you know, he, he really, you know, Connecticut can be kind of a boring and soul sucking place, especially, (laughs) especially in the sort of center of the state. It's just a cultural void, very beautiful, but it's a cultural void. And, uh, you know, he wanted to go start his life over. And uh, if you have to scrap a band to do that, like, eh, it's worth it. And for the record, he's a dad now. He's killing it. He went from band dad to real dad. He went from band dad to real dad. um, And nobody is surprised. Um, So, yeah, I like I completely support that decision that he made. And 
we had enough time to make a new record and uh it was everything we wanted to do at the time and it felt very good and natural yeah i guess i just bring it up because i think for me like the takeaway from the other night from from the certs i kill giants reunion thing is Mm -hmm. that when you kind of make that decision to end something it feels like oh i can just start there's there's always a song to write there's always a band to start yeah but i feel like uh momentum especially creating momentum but also sustaining it that's harder than it seems like on the other side of that equation yeah um now from recording you and your bands on multiple occasions i could always it's clear to everybody that you had a more sophisticated understanding than everyone in the room of how gear like amps guitars pedals all work under the hood Mm -hmm. more maybe even especially more so than me um now is there a specific moment in your kind of tinkering around that you come across was it like a specific design or some instance that made you say hey i could monetize this um i think it was the idea that uh you know like when when i transitioned into making my own designs it was because i had a very convoluted setup to achieve a certain sound um the uh, final Native Wildlife record and then the split we did before that, I was running basically the same signal chain, which had come from a tour that we did prior to that first recording. So I had the same static setup for a while, but it took a lot of uh, components to achieve that. And I was never quite happy with how it sounded live. And so there was a part of me that said, OK, I have to dive into the nuts and bolts of this to get uh, a one size, you know, or just one thing that does what all of these things do in terms of sort of, you know, pre processing a guitar and then doing a thing to it and then making that sound good with an amp um, just in the broadest terms. And so, but when I made that people would say, Oh, well, I really like how you sounded on your record. Like, can I, can I try this? Um, Or even when I was talking about making it, people said, well, I always trust your judgment on guitar tone. So I would love to buy whatever you make, which was a scary thing because that person had not heard what I was making. Uh, but it did mean that for the first 15 pedals that I built, I did this batch of 15 of my longsword overdrive and uh, people bought it almost sight unseen. I didn't have the money to make a demo. Um, I basically sold off half of my pedals to buy the parts to make those. And then that seed money turned into the company, wow. um, which is which is crazy to think of now. Um, but it was just, yeah, it was those 15 pedals. I didn't, I didn't pay myself a dime from those. It was more like, can I make... 15 of the same thing and have 15 people want them. And the answer was, I guess so. Like initial capital, basically. Yeah, yeah. And so it ended up working out, which is, it's nuts, but. I'll say, and I mean, when we talk about the market for guitar gear, there's, there are so many forces at work, right? There's, there's uh, like an explosion of boutique and specialty um, builders kind of at the same time anyway, seemingly overnight, Mm -hmm. which could help or hurt, I suppose. There's, you know, internet knowledge bases and communities where you kind of bounce ideas off each other. Mm-hmm. And then on the flip side, right, there's people who buy limited run things just to flip them. There's yeah. obvious plagiarism. Yep. How do you not only navigate those factors, but also stand out from like John Q Tube Screamer, right? Like every unoriginal, like here's a clone clone, right? Mm-hmm. I think so. I actually, I like to use this analogy a lot, uh, which is that, you know, a, a pedal to me, is an artistic, it's a form of artistic output, a design. And you could play in a cover band, you know, cover bands are fine. They make a lot of money. And in the same way, you can take a design, which has been sort of subsumed into the public domain for 40 years, and you can make that. That's fine, whatever. Or you can say, all right, I'm going to write my own song and I'm going to 
you know, learn the chords. I'm going to try to write a solo. I don't know, whatever. And then you make something that's that's new, but you are still playing, you know, the same notes and you're borrowing the same chords that everyone else is playing. It's the meta structure. It's the, the narrative. It's the personal connection. You know, like there are so many bands and genres that I like, but I'm more inclined to listen to the ones of people I know just in the same way that I'm more inclined to buy something like a pedal from somebody I know. And I think that's something that helped me early on was having a connection with people, with musicians I knew, um, but locally and as like a, a broader touring network uh, to sort of get things out there and just have a personal connection and say, I, I trust this person's artistic sensibility and I'm going to uh, support their work. This is something that I've experienced too. Like when I was touring a lot with Aviator, that mm-hmm. kind of gave me sort of a platform, but also I don't think I would have a lot of the recording uh, repertoire that I do had I not been out there getting in front of people's faces and also doing the work on my own end. Mm-hmm. And I think Native Wildlife and to some extent Tiny Fractures and Ember Reef kind of also put you on the map in that way. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely accurate because I would, you know, I, I, I talk a lot about gear. You know, it's, some, it's uh, you know, both as a passion, but also as a, you know, social anxiety anchor <laughs> to, to talk about stuff I'm super into. Um, and so that kind of like fueled the reputation a little bit, just being a huge friggin' nerd. Um, and, uh, but yeah, also caring a lot about how studio recordings sound. I love listening to how songs are made and what they're made with and learning about the process. And also the process is as important as the actual product to me as well. Um, so it's only a natural extension of, you know, uh, making a record is like, oh, well I made the stuff that's used to make the record that just makes it more personally significant, more in the moment. Um, you know, just more uh, personal, I guess. Yeah, and the thing that I actually always appreciated about Native Wildlife, you guys took your time Mm -hmm. uh, more than other bands that I worked with, especially bands of the same. You know, if you have five songs, two days, but you guys would book three, or if you had two songs, you'd book a whole weekend, Yeah, and we'd really spend a lot of time dialing in sounds, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. that has done nothing but favors for you and for me. Yeah, definitely. Love it. it's, It's the right way to go, I think, if you could afford it. electronic audio experiments actually take shape? So I think in the fall of 2014, I was starting my PhD. Um, We were writing what would become the Native Wildlife. uh, It was going to be a full length originally, and then we scaled it back. Um, We were writing a Tiny Fractures EP. um, And then uh, I was also tinkering with pedals and building uh, one-offs for friends, kind of just to get my chops out. I was like, I don't even know how to wire stuff. I'm just going to you know, just dive headfirst. And I was sell- I was building things and selling them at cost to people. I was living with my parents at the time, well, up until September 2014. So I just, I had a lot of time on my hands. I was doing all these things in parallel. And then once I, my goal was to have a prototype ready for those, those recordings, which if you remember, I brought that uh, box that I'd sharpied up. That was the first longsword. Yes. Um, and so that was used on the Tiny Fractures record and uh, to a lesser extent on the Native Wildlife record. And so it was at that point, then it was the summer of uh, 2015, which was when I did the first uh, the first batch. And so at that point, um, Native Wildlife was was sort of winding down. I think we, we played our farewell show in May of 2015. 
And it was in uh, July to August of 2015 that the first batch of longswords came out. So I sort of, once I had the mental bandwidth to get into pedals, then it was like, all right, I'm just going all in and we'll see what happens. And that mental bandwidth has been occupied with pedals rather than bands ever since. And obviously this is a show about music and the economy of its seedy underbelly. And so as such, it's kind of a first for me to have someone on the show who has created jobs in a way. So from that humble beginnings in summer of 2015, you now have like kind of a staff at yeah. Electronic Audio Experiments. I have a network of people who help me out and, uh, you know, they're all people with multiple gigs. Um, you know, like my my right-hand person is uh, Zach Weeks from Certsay and Love Child and a billion other, and now an Animal Flag. And, um, you know, like Zach does a lot of mastering, um, a lot of mixing. Um, he is uh, an assistant at a major recording studio and uh, when he's not doing those things, he helps me build pedals, which is which is great because uh, there's time to tour and there's time to to do audio jobs. And uh, you know, pedal companies are a surprisingly good way to fit into the gig economy as a musician because a lot of the manufacturing work is something that is kind of muscle memory. You already have good hand-eye coordination if you can play an instrument. You can learn how to solder in a weekend. And there's a surprising number of little pedal companies here and there, and a lot of them need help. And uh, so that's something where I've sort of, I, I, I don't have any one person who can work full time for me. And uh, also, you know, we're not exactly printing money. So, uh, you know, a full time employee would be a lot, but having people here and there to help me out. Um, you know, my, one of my other right hand people is uh, Brad um, from uh, formerly of that band Lunglust. Um, really great heavy hardcore band from uh, the Boston area. Oh, yeah. And they... uh, he was also in the Proselyte, who, who shredded. I don't know them, but I do know that I. That Plague Survivors played a show with Long Lust <laughs> once, and then like we left as soon as we played, and like not that many people were there, so I think they like have it out for me. Uh-oh. But I'm sure I'm sure Brad's above all that. I'm sure I'm I'm in good standing with the community. Um, <laughs> so sorry, I cut you off. Um, but yeah, the uh, you know so that's like a, that's the thing that's really great because obviously if a job is music centered, like you know there's, there's a lot of sympathy for touring and whatever, and uh, it also just broadens that network. It feels more community based. Um, you know, there are so many things, if I, if you don't mind me going on a tangent here, about um, the, the musical instrument industry um, that are bucking trends of consumer electronics and capitalism at large in the way that uh, there's still a demand for products that are handmade, uh, products that are, are built locally, um, but without this sort of like jingoistic bent to it, um, because, you know, like art is naturally a local phenomenon in a lot of ways. There's this sort of idea that, uh, you know, like you are, you know, like you're supporting small businesses, like, you know, and not entrepreneurs, more auteurs, I guess would be a better word to put it without being too pretentious. No, um, I, you I, know, I, I, I get behind that. It's, vertic- it. it's vertically integrated, right? Like, you know, the same people are, are coming up with ideas and then making them with their hands, which is a really nice notion. Um, you basically have like artisanal creators on from not only from the design that you make, but also mm-hmm. the vendors that you contract for etching and yep. for enclosure building. Yeah, it's and all... even for people who put together PCBs yeah. and uh, you know do the wiring, like mm-hmm. Brad and Zach. And uh, you know, so when you put all you put all that together, and uh, you know, it's not a race to the bottom either. You know, you don't want to buy the thing. I mean, there are people who buy like the the Walmart stuff. Sure. Um, and there's, you know, there's certainly an argument to be made for working musicians buying affordable gear. Um, but it's also my experience that that's the stuff that's going to break on you when you need it the most. Oh yeah, 
equality controls. Yeah. In the so, shitter. Yeah. You know, I don't want to be self-aggrandizing about my music career. Um, I don't think I'm really coming from a platform where it's like, oh, this veteran of this touring band has gone and, you know, is now imparting his wisdom. Um, but I know what it's like to be on tour. I didn't tour as much as some of my peers, but I know enough about things breaking on the road and doing triage with a, you know, uh, soldering iron plugged into the AC adapter of a van um, going down the highway. Like, I, you know, like that's the thing that you have to be aware of is, uh, you know, all these little details. Yeah, I would never uh, fault anyone for not having the same kind of touring experience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's always someone who's done a little bit more and had a little bit more boots on the ground than than you have right and Mm -hmm. i i agree you've done your time you know what it's like you know i think it's just about knowing the calculus involved like i haven't done that much like Mm -hmm. the way that i've described it before probably multiple times on this show alone is like whenever i would go on tour we would go on tour for like two weeks here wait for three months Mm -hmm. go on another like four or five weeks and then you know where there's there's people who will just turn right around and go back out on another tour with a different band Mm -hmm. or a different lineup or something like that at that point you you know like you've you've learned your lessons about longevity of equipment and vans and things like that but uh, you know i guess i haven't experienced the mental anguish of repeated touring nor do i have the wherewithal and neither do i i don't think i mean (laughs) i not to like out myself as unqualified but like I'm sitting here doing this instead of being out there doing that, right? <laughs> so, like, how much can I possibly know? But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, like, I'm sure that just in the two years since I stopped really touring kind of a lot, I'm sure the lot has changed. I'm sure the dynamics are are different, and I'm sure that the returns from everybody are different, and, yeah. and especially, like, both return on investment in a literal sense and also fulfillment-wise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm sure that it's just a very different equation as time goes on because... I've uh, other people have kind of opined that maybe the band thing is uh, going the way of the dinosaur a little bit. Yeah, I think, you know, um, if pedal cells are an indicator, then, you know, people are still very interested in making music. But uh, I think I think if that's such a not only a luxury thing, if I may say that, but like a niche item that that core audience is never really going to dwindle that much. Yeah. I mean, I kind of wonder like how many of my things are going to, you know, um, like 35 year olds who work at tech jobs and have a lot of money and are just playing in their bedroom. Um, and how many are going to, you know, like a, a 19 year old who's going to write the next great like emo record. Yeah. Know? And I think that you do something smart and that you send out your prototypes with, uh, touring groups as like a stress test and also mm-hmm. like a what do you like what don't you like yeah. like focus group kind well, of thing if it doesn't work on the road then like it doesn't really have as much value to me um, because you know like live music is what keeps everything going it's funny um, to hear you say that too because you put so much emphasis on the studio mm-hmm. and having this um, art feel, artful curation of sound mm-hmm. right like we haven't even talked about ember wreath at all which is like <laughs> talk about an artful curation of sound and texture oh my god um, i remember being called i uh somebody called me a, a soy boy curating soundscapes um that was an insult lobbied to me via youtube comment that's a badge of honor to somebody like me yeah i guess so <laughs> but, <laughs> but that, that <laughs> curated soundscapes was the exact phrase they used <laughs> you're like you, you understand that's like yeah. a good thing right yep. that's like what i'm going for yep yeah, I mean, I don't know what your opinion on soy is. I don't know what I would do without it. Completely personally. fine. Totally fine. Yeah, there you go. That's a nice middle-of-the-road answer. Um, and so give me the decision-making that led to, well, I can't do this alone. Was it just balancing it against the PhD? Yeah, it's well, first it was like, man, I really don't have time to be in a band. 
Um, so let me see if I can have someone help me out so I can go to band practice. And then the demand uh, just eclipsed that still. So, um, but gosh, you know, you know, working in a lab is a very, is a very demanding thing. Um, and what, and yeah, just give me like a bird's eye view of your job just so you can sound smart. So I make uh, devices, which are for... Uh, oh, actually, I should clarify. You make devices as one job, yeah. but your primary job, your PhD work. Yeah, so my... In my PhD program, I'm wor- my thesis is about making a new kind of optical device. And so day in and day out, I'm working on those devices in a clean room. And then when they're ready to test, I have this uh, laser-based setup for measuring what they do. Um, and clean room work is very grueling. You have to suit up in you know, bunny suit, gloves, the, the hair net, the beard net, the whole shebang. Um, and it's uh, a lot of communal equipment. So you work very odd hours because you're fitting into a schedule with a dozen other people all trying to make stuff. Um, you know, it's very, it's very lonely work. It's very loud work. There's equipment thrumming in your ears all day. Um, and so sometimes coming home and soldering is just way too exhausting. Um, not to mention trying to, you know, maintain a social life and a partner and, you know, and a dog and, you know, like there's, uh, you know, working two jobs is a brutal thing. You got science at the ass going on here. (laughs) Um, now obviously you work in a space, at least with the, with the pedal thing and with, the amps that you've designed and guitar work, whatever else you do, you work in a space that's almost reverently analog, mm-hmm. right? But you can almost forgive people for going to more digital audio solutions, right? Like because, I don't know, as cash flow from you know music sales continues to trend downward, uh, you want to keep production costs low. So maybe there's a plug-in for everything. Like I don't want to buzz market more than I have to, but an example right now is like, the dark glass uh, B7K, like yeah. the plug-in version of yep, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's amazing that that exists. Um, it is. I have a, a very deep reverence for DSP. And the only reason I haven't gotten into it is because I do enough coding at my day job that I don't want to mix uh, work and pleasure. But uh, it is one of those things I would love to dive into. So this, you could see a future where there's like uh, an AAX or VST version of like the Model FET, for example. Um, maybe if someone, someone uh, smarter than me can figure out how to code that up. But also, I really like the idea of digital pedals in general because um, there are so many possibilities that you just can't do with a physical, uh, you know, circuit. Uh, once you're in the coding realm, everything becomes abstract, and you can do sounds that people haven't even dreamed of yet. I'm not really into the emulation side. I have a deep respect for it because the math is very complicated. Um, but I think digital sounds are are where there's sort of new frontiers of creation. And uh, I, I love it for that. It's something I'd love to dive into. You also don't have to worry about stock either. Yes. Inventory. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or even also, if you know, from a manufacturing perspective, you can make one platform and then program it in different ways and um, have that sort of flexibility, which is also really cool. Anything in the hopper for you? Like what's... Oh, talk to me in a year. Um, <laughs> That's probably when this will come out, knowing yeah. me. <laughs> As always, if you liked anything you heard, you can support John's endeavors, past and present, using the links I've provided in the description of this episode. You can also find the running Spotify playlist of all the music featured on Selling Out. There was so much of this conversation with John that I had to leave on the cutting room floor that I wish I could have kept in, especially the beginnings of a conversation into which we could have and probably should have delved way further about the perception of classism in gear culture. So if you have any thoughts to that end, I'd love to hear from you. Is the unending quest for the perfect tone or even the pursuit of technical proficiency, are these necessarily barriers to entry for aspiring musicians? Feel free to weigh in at sellinoutpodcast at gmail.com or you can reach me on Twitter at sellinoutad. 
If you want to support the show with a small monetary contribution and get bonus episodes in return, visit patreon.com slash sellingoutpodcast. For a transcript of this and every episode, assuming I've kept it updated, which I haven't, visit sellingout.tumblr.com slash transcripts. And if you enjoy the show, consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app, please. It helps others find the show. Or you can click interested on the Facebook event and hope others will see it so they'll go and you can just stay home and watch TV or whatever. Theme music courtesy of Such Gold, photography by Nick Di Natale. I'm Mike Moschetto. This is Selling Out.